You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Now it was late October. Uh, Leaves had turned, many of them had fallen. The warmth lingering from summer was gone and uh, it was cold, thin shards of ice beginning to form around the edges of the water. And uh, our neighbor decided that he wanted to recover all of the fish that he had put in his dugout that summer. And so uh, he brought out a couple of industrial-sized water pumps And asked my brother and I, as young teenagers, if we would come and collect fish out of the mud uh, once he had pumped out the water. Uh, It was a blast. At first, we were sliding down the slick clay sides of the banks of the dugout, splashing in the water. Um, We waded through like thigh-deep slime, throwing trout into five-gallon pails. Uh, We succeeded in getting an Argo fully stuck, neither floating nor driving. Um... And uh, before long, we had all the fish gathered, and suddenly we were freezing cold. It was time to get out of there. You couldn't climb the banks. They were, they were too steep, too slippery. We had to be pulled out with ropes and then uh, herded into the back of my dad's truck, the box of the truck, and taken home. And uh, you can imagine, we wanted into the house. I want to warm up. And my mom, shockingly, was not too thrilled about that idea. Uh, and so we were not in yet. Uh, Having been pulled out of the mud was great, uh, but that was only the beginning of the process then of being, uh, having those muddy, slimy clothes peeled off and getting sprayed down with the well water out of the hose uh, and getting cleaned off, off mud, off our arms and legs and out of our hair and everywhere um, before we could be fully welcomed into the house. It's not a perfect analogy. There's no such thing. Um, But I think there's some helpful elements there as we turn this morning to uh, Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 5 to 11. So turn with me to uh, Colossians 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one uh, in the pew there in front of you. Grab it, open it up. Um, We want you to have God's Word open in front of you. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home or you don't have one you can read easily, please take this one. It's our gift to you. Um, We want you to have it. Uh, But we want you to have it open in front of you for sure now because I don't have anything for you. Um, We come together to see God's word and what he has for us. Um, Last week we looked at Colossians 3 verses 1 to 4 which talks about this new life that we have in Christ as believers. The the very thing that we're celebrating through the, uh, the picture of baptism together this morning. Um, That we're, we're saved out of sin and death and hell. And yet how many of us Um, have received that new life. You know the glory of forgiveness and salvation, uh, but then can look down at our lives, our thoughts and our deeds and our words, and confidently say, yeah, all good. Like I am heaven ready now. No problem here. Uh, No, not me. And, And I dare say none of you either. Our salvation begins us being pulled out of the muddy pit, rescued out of the the mire, out of sin and death. Um, And make no mistake, that that is the pivotal moment. That is the the radical transformation. That's the game-changing key. And and we are fully forgiven of our sin and our guilt. We're absolutely, unquestionably bound for heaven from that moment on. But the road to get there, the path that that lies between that moment of salvation and that final entrance into heaven uh, is is much like the process uh, between being pulled out of the muddy pit uh, and washed off and prepared to enter the house. There's a, a road to go down, and that road is the road of sanctification. Sanctification is that actual 
cleaning off of the the lingering filth. The guilt of sin is washed away and yet uh, sin continues to cling and and requires uh, purification in our our day-to-day lives. So to be more in line with, with this new life we have in Christ is this process of being sanctified, more fitted for a glorious eternity, the presence of a holy God. And so um, let me read this passage for us, and then we'll take a closer look. What does this process look like? What does it mean to live uh, in this new life? Um, We're going to look at verses 5 to 11 of Colossians 3, um, but I want to start back in verse 1, just so we kind of get the whole picture. So starting in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If then... You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now here's our passage beginning. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth, the hope that is there, the gospel um, of salvation for, for wretched sinners like us. Lord, I pray this morning as we look into your word that you would open our eyes to see your truth. God, that you would convict our hearts, that you would be using um, your word by your spirit to bring sanctification in us more and more. God, that we might be transformed to the image of Christ, that we might be faithfully putting to death the old self and putting on the new self in Christ Jesus, that you might be glorified. So God, be at work in us Um, By your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing Paul says here uh, in verse 5 is strongly worded, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. This is the main point from verse 5 down to verse 9, put off the old self. So point one, Put off the old self, like, like this muddy pair of clothes. Get rid of it. Before we get too far, we need to notice once again that, that Paul puts in this incredibly significant little word that we so often overlook and underappreciated. It's the word, therefore. A reminder. These verses, like every passage in the Bible, um, doesn't just stand there on its own. It's, it's not meant to be kind of ripped out by itself and, and slapped on a coffee mug. Uh, it has context. There's a, a progression of logic here that brings us to this point. We can't, we can't miss that. Paul is, is not just saying this to anyone who's listening. He's not just saying this to uh, anyone who might be reading hey, this is what you need to do. Put to death the old self. You need to stop sinning. No, the the therefore is important. It matters. It tells us who he's writing to and and why he's telling them to do this. That's why I wanted to read verses one to four as well. He's talking to those who have been raised in Christ. Those who by grace through faith already have the new life. It is only based on and flowing out of that new life that we then begin to put the old self to death. We we so often get this backwards. It's easy to do. Maybe thinking of ourselves or maybe you're thinking of your neighbor or coworker that you've been sharing the gospel with. And, And we so quickly jump to stop sinning. Then you'll be good with God. 
Stop doing the things you're doing. Or I need to clean myself up. I need to stop doing those things. And then, then I'll be right with God. And, and look, that's not bad advice to stop sinning. But that's not what you need. That's not what your coworker primarily needs. What we truly need is new life in Christ. We need to turn from sin and to him, trust in him by grace, through faith, receive salvation. And then, after that, we begin to put off the old self. He begins to purify and sanctify and transform. Then we begin to talk about pursuing holiness and and cleaning out the sin of our life in practical ways. So, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, You've not come to Jesus in humility as you saw uh, testified before you this morning in these baptism testimonies. Admitting your guilt of sin, trusting in him and him alone for salvation. If that's not you, that's where you need to begin. Your job is not to start cleaning the mud off. It's to realize you're in the pit and need to be pulled out. You need that new life before we begin down this path of living the new life. So with that in place, let's take a closer look. Let's look now at living this new life. And you'll notice Paul begins um, with the command, put to death what is earthly in you. And there are two lists then in this passage. The first list is verse 5, and then the next list is verse 8. And tucked in between those two lists in verses 6 and 7 uh, is the reason why. So we're going to look at the two lists uh, on 5 and 8, and then we're going to come back to verses 6 and 7 and look at the reason. So let's start with this first list. What is this old self? What does it look like as we're, as we're pulled out of our sin and then um, called to put off that old self? We need to identify it. And this first list, you'll see, is primarily a list of, of inward sins. He's talking about the heart here. But he begins with sexual immorality. This is the most kind of action-oriented of the group. Uh, But the Greek word there is porneai, which is a very broad term throughout the New Testament. Um, Biblically speaking, it, it essentially means any sexual activity that falls outside of God's design for sex. One man, one woman in the covenant relationship of marriage. That's it. That's the only place. People talk about, oh, the the Bible's so restrictive. And I'm like, you don't have a clue. It's way more than you think. So that includes, yes, all homosexual behavior. That includes any sexual activity whatsoever between two people who have not made the formal covenant of marriage together. It includes any sexual activity that only includes one person. And as Jesus so clearly put it, Even if you lust after someone, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. So it even includes sexual desires where there isn't even any physical outworking. That's what we are to put off, sexual immorality in in all of its many forms. And and Paul continues to kind of look to the heart behind it as he fills out this list, impurity, passion, that's, that's lustful desires, evil desires. These are sins of the heart regarding uh, sexual sin. And then the last one comes in, seemingly kind of out of left field, covetousness, which is idolatry. And we think, Paul, what's that about? Like, why covetousness? Why here? This seems really out of place. And then how did you make the jump from covetousness to, to idolatry? Like, that's a bit of a leap, isn't it? Well, let's answer the second question first. Um, the Greek word for covetous there is um, pleonexia. I think that's helpful. Um, it's two words slammed together. The, the echo on the end um, means uh, to have. And the pleon at the beginning means more. I just want to have more. Longing, the drive, the desire to have more. Well, m- more than what? Well, more than what I have. More than what God has given to me, but also more than what God has allowed. God says these things are good and permissible. These are the things that are in bounds. These are the things that are here for for you to enjoy, and these things are off limits. These things are not good. 
And we say, well, I want those things also. And we tend to, to see coveting as one of those acceptable sins, right? We kind of joke about it. I mean, everybody does it. It's not a big deal, right? It's, it's a small thing. It's not an ugly sin. And Paul says, hold up a second. What, what are you saying when you are discontent, when you are having that desire for more, more than what God has given you, more than what God has allowed, you are engaging in coveting after those things, wishing that you had them, longing for them, or even pursuing them and taking them. What have you said about God in your heart? You've said, God, you're not good. You have not given me what is good. You have not allowed me what is good. And you remove God from his position, his rightful place as the one who is worshipped and honored. And really, you replace him with whatever that thing is that you've been coveting. You say, God, I would rather have this thing than your blessing. It's idolatry. It's removing God from his rightful throne in our hearts. Coveting is not a small sin. It is a grievous attack against the goodness and the graciousness and the holiness of God. And it, it only betrays the, the depth of wickedness in our heart that we would kind of downplay it and say, oh, that's not a big deal. That's just a little sin. That's just a, a small thing. Now, you've already made the second connection. How does Paul get from covetousness to sexual sin has become apparent. It's the lust of the heart. It's coveting. It's longing after either what God has not given in a, a husband or a wife or what God has not allowed within his design for marriage and sex. All forms of sexual immorality, even just the desire of the heart, are, are covetousness and, and idolatry. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul focuses so much on this? I mean, he gives this list of six things. He had all kinds of different sins that he could have picked at. He could have talked about jealousy or hatred or bitterness or drunkenness. Why give six all focused on sexual immorality? Well, maybe because he knows the human heart. Maybe because as much as we'd like to think our day is so much different from Paul's day um, that really the, the depraved human heart hasn't changed all that much. The twisted, covetous desires that were so prevalent in Paul's day are still with us today. One of the greatest lies of the devil is that those who sin with sexual immorality and its many and various forms struggle alone. They're the only ones. No one else sins or is tempted in the way that, that you are. And you're the only one who's in this battle. And if, and if you're to be honest about it in the church, well, you'd be ostracized. You'd be pushed out. People would, would keep you at arm's length. They wouldn't want to have anything to do with you. That's a lie. It's a lie from Satan. Yes, we, we must take sin seriously. We must put it to death. It is, it is serious and grievous and ugly. But guess what? Look around. We're all here because we have sin that is serious and grievous and ugly. We're all here because we need Jesus, and we're not surprised that you do too. Sin thrives in the darkness. Don't believe that lie. Don't hide alone in your sin. If you're a guy, talk to me about it. Talk to one of the elders. If you're a lady, talk to my wife about it. Talk to one of the other elders' wives. We need to put sin to death, but we don't need to do it alone. We want to walk through these things together. That's the, the first list of sins, sexual immorality that we're to, we're to put off. The second list then is in verse 8. And where the first list is a little more inward sins in the heart, looking at that, the second list is a little more outward. It's a little more kind of community focused. Looking at verse 8, Paul writes, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And then verse 9, I think, is the last on the list. Do not lie to one another. And you can see how each of these are um, sins that kind of attack uh, the fellowship, the community of the church. 
It's not quite as clear as the other list, but I think the, the string running through, I think these are all sins of the tongue. These are sins of speech. Anger is that slow, burning smolder. It's the deep dislike for someone that lingers. It leaves you constantly assuming the worst, finding fault, assuming blame. Wrath is more the, the hot outburst of anger. It's losing your temper. It's loud and obvious in some of us. and others, it's a little more quiet, a little more socially acceptable. But the Lord sees it. Malice, then, a pretty general term. This is just mean-spirited speech. Speech that is meant to, to cut, to, to cause harm, to mock, to, to tear down. Slander. The word there is actually blasphemy. Usually it's used of uh, slandering God. But it can also be used of people. It's lies or partial truths or selected truths that, that assault someone's character. Cut someone down in the eyes of others. It's talking poorly about others, uh, particularly when they're not present. Obscene talk, then. Uh, the NASB with, uh, went with abusive language. I, I, I don't quite understand that choice. I think this is uh, speech that is derogatory, that is filthy, that is shameful, uh, indecent. Um, this word is used over uh, in Ephesians 5 alongside crude joking. It's out of place for believers. Our speech ought to be pure, honoring to the Lord. And then finally, uh, do not lie to one another. And, and I think the implication there is broader than maybe just a straight-out lie, but, but all kinds of deceit and dishonesty. Um, lies between us tear at the fabric of the community. They, they, they put forward a, a false sense of, of who I am. And, 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 it, and it breaks down our relationships together. And then in, uh, back in verse 8, the start of verse 8, um, as Paul says, put them all away. Um, the word he uses there is a word to be used of, uh, of taking off filthy clothing. Think of getting rid of those dirty coveralls at the end of a work day. Get rid of it. These things don't belong. Um, they're, they're, they're saturated with mud and, and clay, dirty and disgusting. Get rid of them. Put off this old self. Now let's look at the reason why. Why does he say these things? Why is it that we're to, to put to death this old self? And he says, put them off because of the wrath of God. Let me read verses 6 and 7 again for us as we can see exactly what we're talking about. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. That's a scary statement. Do we really get that? Because of, of these things, these things that you at least once used to walk in, some of you are still carrying this baggage with you. He says, the wrath of God is coming. We like to brush sin off. We like to take it lightly. We like to make excuses for it and find creative ways to say, oh, no, this sin, my sin is okay because of this and this, and, and I think about it this way. Paul says, no, the wrath of God is coming against these things. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to excuse it. Don't say, oh, that's just a personality quirk, or that's just the way I am sometimes. No. God does not take it lightly. It is evil in the eyes of a holy God. He is wrathful against it. Listen to Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 speaks of the, the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And he says that he will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Can you imagine? I mean, we like to think of the, the coming of Jesus as a wonderful day, the day that we receive our salvation, the fullness of it, and, and so we should. But it will also be a day of terror and wrath. And that was us before Christ saved us. We walked in those sins. That was my life in those things upon which the wrath of God is coming. Now, I want you to look carefully 
In this passage, he is, he is not threatening believers with the wrath of God. Do you see that? Now, he's reminding us of what we have escaped. This is the way you used to live. You used to walk in these things. This is the wrath that you so narrowly avoided. Now, um, other translations have an, an extra phrase in there. The wrath of God is coming uh, against the sons of disobedience. And that clarifies it. Um, ESV, you'll find that down in a footnote. There's some, some discussion there as we look at the ancient manuscripts um, and compare them. This is one of those places there's not full agreement. Um, some of the, most of the manuscripts have that phrase. Some very important and earliest manuscripts don't. Um, and so I think most likely, and that's what the ESV seems to assume, um, that this phrase was imported. And, and probably because Ephesians 6.5 is a very similar verse that definitely has that phrase against the sons of disobedience. And so a scribe, as he was copying out this manuscript, um, sometimes maybe he would put in the margin as explanatory against the sons of disobedience, trying to help us understand it. Or maybe he just knew scripture so well, he kind of from memory out of Ephesians added that in. Um, regardless of how it got there, um, it doesn't change the text. Whether it's there or not, that's clearly what is meant. And that's the, the warning that Paul is giving. That God is wrathful against sin. That his wrath is coming against those who live in sin. And that ought to motivate us to have nothing to do with it. We see the, the seriousness of our old predicament. As an example, when I, we were on holidays um, two summers ago, um, we had set up a campfire on a, on a rocky beach, nice, good, roaring fire. And uh, Elijah, my youngest son, decided it would be a good idea to try to squeeze between me and my chair and our campfire. And uh, as he did, he stepped on a loose stone and began to fall. And it was one of those terrifying moments where everything's slow-mo and you feel like you're thinking and moving through molasses. And I watched as my son, silhouetted against a roaring fire, began to windmill trying to catch his balance. And I'm thinking, I've got to move. I've got to grab him. I've got to move. And, and my muscles just would not react. And he fell backwards into that fire. As he fell back, my muscles finally caught up with my frantic neurons and I grabbed him by the shoulders and pulled him back out almost miraculously, he came out completely unscathed. He had a little singed callus on his left foot. That was it. I rescued him out of the fire. I snatched him out. Now, I never threatened to throw him back in the fire. Like, that wasn't on the table. But I'll tell you what, that kid had a new respect for the fire. Knowing what he had been snatched from, without a, a threat to be thrown back in, he knew, I don't want to mess with that. I'm not going back there. Knowing the wrath of God that we have escaped, that we have been snatched out of, ought to leave us a little bit breathless, a little bit trembling. Say, oh, I don't want to go back there. I want to have nothing to do with that. I don't, want to, I don't want to touch that. The wrath of God is coming on these things. Don't, don't play with sin. Put off that old self with its inward sinful desires of sexual immorality with its outward sins of, 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 of lying and hatred and bitterness that, that destroy the community around us. Don't take it lightly. Listen to Jesus' words, Matthew 5, 29 to 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of the members, one of the pieces of your body, than to have your whole body thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members that your whole body be thrown into hell. This is shocking. This is crazy talk, Jesus. Now, there are some through Christian history who have literally torn out their eyes, cut off their hands, castrated themselves. This has happened. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Honestly, if only sin were that easily eradicated. But it's not. Sin is not a problem of the eye or the hand. It's a problem of the heart. 
Jesus is very intentionally using, however, this violent and shocking language uh, as, a, as the response to sin, because that is the only right response, a response that is violent, aggressive. I think sometimes we approach sin like a, like a guest in our house that has just stayed a little bit too late. You know, we just kind of start to suggest, kind of yawn when they're looking, you check your watch. Maybe if you're really bold, you'd say, boy, look at the time, and you hope they kind of get the hint and eventually leave. Sin is not an inconvenient guest in your house. It is the enemy of your soul. It is a violent and dangerous intruder that wants to destroy you. How do we play with it this way? It's murderous. The wrath of God is coming upon these things. You don't suggest that it should leave. You muster all of your courage and your strength and you confront him for the monster that he is. You grab him by the shirt collar. And at that point, he's going to plead with you. Oh, but we're friends. Remember all those supposed good times we've had together? He'll try to earn your sympathy. If that doesn't work, he's going to start to fight and kick back and, and eye gouge and bite and claw. You don't let up. You stop your ears. You hold tight. You clench your fist. And even if it's costly and painful, even if you break the coffee table in the struggle and you have to throw him out through the picture window, you get sin out of your life. It's going to hurt. There's going to be cost to it. You're going to have to open up to other people and, and admit that you're sinful. Maybe you need to cut the cord on your computer. Maybe you need to get yourself a flip phone. It's going to cost, but do what it takes. Put off that old self. Put it to death because of these things. The wrath of God is coming to terrify us. This is what we've been saved from. Don't, don't go back there. If you have this new life in Christ, live in that. Put sin to death. And Paul moves into verses 9 and 10 to the other side of the coin. Put off the old self and put on the new self. Starting in verse 9, uh, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We'll dive into the, the next set of verses um, in two weeks from now. Um, verses 12 to 17. Paul gives another list. This is what the new self looks like. This is the, the new life in Christ. It, it's all of these things. And so this passage right here, this 9 to 11, is just the start, just the, the opening of the door of the new life. But no, let's look at it. Notice exactly what Paul is talking about here. Um, his language shifts again as we pay careful attention to the grammar that he uses. Here he says, seeing that you have put off the old self. And have put on the new. Now he talks as if it's past tense, as if it's completed. So which is it, Paul? I mean, are we supposed to put it to death or is it already put to death? Well, rest assured, Paul is not schizophrenic. He's not contradicting himself from one breath to the next. People look at these things and go, look, Paul obviously doesn't know what he's talking about. No, give him a little bit of credit. He's pointing out the disparity here, the contrast between those um, who are, um, sorry, between who we are in our identity and what we do in our day to day lives. Right? Our identity, if we are truly those who've been raised with Christ, who have this new life, we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into his glorious light, that is true of us. That is who we are in Christ. And in that sense, the old self has been put to death. It's, it's over and done. And yet, we don't act like it. We continue to live in some of these old habits, these old sinful ways. And so in that sense, um, he's saying you need to put to death that which has already been put to death. Begin to act like what you are. And that happens, Paul says, as we are being renewed in the knowledge after the image of our creator. That's where we're headed. We're being renewed. 
And that happens as we grow in knowledge of Christ. So a new believer, radically transformed in, in who he is, actually knows very little of who Christ is and what Christ has called him to be. And so there's actually a mercy in that. I mean, could you imagine if we came to trust in Christ and would see with immediate clarity the full holiness of God and everything he has called us to be? It would crush us. You would would just crumble into the fetal position and that'd be it. No, the Lord reveals it to us little by little. Have you noticed this sin? Do you see this in your life? You paying attention over here? We begin typically so often with one large sin that just consumes our vision. That's what we see. That's what, we, what brings us to our knees. And we battle it, as we should. But, but it almost begins to, to kind of take so much of our vision, we start to assume, um, boy, once I deal with that, then I'll be holy. As soon as I get this one thing out of the way, that's, that's all there is, right? And, and then as we grow and, and are renewed, um, we put that sin behind us and all of a sudden three more seem to come up out of nowhere. Where'd that come from? I didn't know I was an angry person. I thought I was just lustful. Now I'm lustful and angry. And it continues. I remember as a young believer reading different godly men and just being shocked to read of George Whitfield and George Mueller and John Bunyan and J.I. Packer and John Piper, these godly men so much further down the road of holiness than I ever even can hope to be. And so discouraging to read them as they unfolded their own sinfulness. As they bemoaned the wickedness in their own hearts. And I'm thinking, if that's you, where does that leave me? I'm so far behind that. It's pretty discouraging. But the way I finally came to understand it is this. The closer you get to the light, the bigger the shadows grow. Right? As you grow in the knowledge of God, as you draw closer to him, there are things that that didn't even make it onto the radar of your conscience that now start to look pretty ugly. Now start to show pretty stark in contrast to the glory of God. And they are. Notice the goal. What's the standard, the measuring stick that is used as we strive to, to grow in holiness? What's the bar that we're shooting for? It's not your neighbor. That would be nice if we could just pick someone and go, well, I'm better than that guy. Um, That's not it. It's not even your your very godly grandfather that you've always looked up to. Thank goodness it's not your pastor. I hope you've put that idea away long ago. The standard is God himself as revealed to us in Christ. That's what we're striving for. The image of our creator. God says, be holy as I am holy. That's what we're running after. But more importantly, that's what the Lord is working in us. Did you notice that switch as well? Put off that old self. Put it to death. Why? Because we are being renewed. We're being renewed. It's a passive thing. It's something that is happening to us. He's doing it. It's him at work in us, renewing us and and drawing us closer to himself. Flip over. I didn't get this on the screen, but just the next book over. uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. I hear pages flipping. I'll give you a minute to get there. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Listen to the hope in this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. What? Completely? And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's too good to be true. And then listen to verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He's doing it. He is renewing us in the knowledge of him. He is sanctifying us. And he'll complete it. Now we're not off the hook. Right? The command still stands. Put to death that old self. Put off those sinful nature. But at the same time, it's the Lord who's working in us. It's the Lord who's bringing that about. Renewing us from the inside out. And he does it as we grow in knowing him more. 
That's how we put on the new self. That's how we live like what we are learning more and more about who he is and the the holy standard that he's called us to as we walk closer and closer with Christ every day. So put sin to death. Put off that old self. Run from sin. Put on this new self clinging to Christ, being renewed in knowledge day after day, the knowledge of him being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And then finally, in that new self, Paul says, live in unity. Live in unity. Look at verse 11. Oh, I'm still in Thessalonians. Colossians 3, 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. There's unity. I think he's contrasting against that, that second list of sins of the old self, which, which use and abuse other people, which brings cracks and corrosion to our relationships. In Christ, being renewed in his image, we're, we're, we're bound together. We have a new identity in him. And to show that, Paul contrasts these different different groups. So first, you'll see he has um, the Jews and the Greeks, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. He's, He's being redundant here. Those are referring to the same two groups. Jews were obviously those of God's chosen people. They, they had been given the law of God. They had the mark as his people of, of circumcision on them versus the Greeks who were Gentiles. They were not circumcised. They were outsiders to the, to the covenant of God. And Paul's saying, hey, in Christ, your spiritual pedigree, your religious background, it doesn't count for anything. In Christ, you who grew up with a, the proverbial religious silver spoon in your mouth have, have generations of faithful Christian heritage, but you're on the same level as the one who comes in from a lineage of, I don't know, Wiccans and warlocks from a, a long line of, of Muslims. You don't gain special privilege because of your religious heritage. You don't have special status in the church. We're all sinners who need a savior. And then he contrasts these cultural differences, barbarians and Scythians. Um, both of these were uh, cultures that were looked down on in the, in the Roman world. The barbarians, um, that word simply means, it actually kind of means like babbler. Um, it was any foreigner the, the, whose language they didn't understand, they would just slap this title of barbarian on them. Um, and Scythians were a, a specific group of nomads um, who were almost universally disdained. Um, Josephus, the ancient um, Jewish historian um, just said this about them. They love to murder one another and are little better than the beasts. So that's kind of where the Scythians fit in the cultural uh, hierarchy. And so the Jews and the Greeks, though they battled over circumcision, uncircumcision, we look down at the barbarians and the Scythians and say, well, at least we're not those guys, right? They don't fit. They don't belong in this culture. Paul says that doesn't matter in Christ. In the church, that, that becomes irrelevant. That, that distinction no longer exists. Those who are refined and dignified, popular, well-liked, they stand at the same level as those who are outsiders, those who are outcasts, those who are unacceptable in the world. And then the slaves and the free. This is a social distinction. Those who have influence and money and power Versus those who were poor and insignificant in the eyes of the world. They were, they were just chattel. They were owned people. In Christ, we stand together. We come to the same place. There, there is such diversity in the church of Jesus Christ. Those who grew up in that, that squeaky clean Christian home in the suburbs and those who grew up in a home where the only time Jesus' name was used was a curse. There are those who, who, are, who are popular, who get the, 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 society, the, the culture, who, who have these crowds of friends, uh, and, and those who are socially awkward, those who are outcasts, those who are looked down on. There are those who have money and influence and, and power, and those who are just barely scraping by. There are so many different things that could define us, but as Christians in Christ, The things that separate us 
are absolutely blown out of the water, fully eclipsed by the one thing that unites us. We are all, every one of us, sinners, deserving of God's wrath, and have been saved by the grace of God, brought to new life in Him. That changes everything. That's a new reality. And so as we, we put off the old self and we put on the new self, that unity is going to come out of that. Some of the distinctions still exist. Right? Paul's not saying that Jews no longer have their Jewish heritage. He's not saying that all of a sudden the slaves go free. They, they weren't. They were still slaves. But in the church, they were just brothers. Because what defines us in Christ is that new life, is him. Look at the, the end of verse 11 again. But Christ is all and in all. He is all. He's our hope. He's our joy. He's our focus. He's our treasure. He is everything we're focused on. And he's in all. He is in each one of us, indwelling us by his spirit. And we are shaped and changed more and more into his likeness. He's in us. And he is in those who are our brothers and sisters who aren't like us. And as we grow closer to Christ, we grow closer to one another. Now, this could be applied in any number of ways, but there's one that's heavy on my heart this morning. It is a great risk to the church right now. How we respond to COVID and regulations, right? I was talking recently with someone, pastor of a church of, of similar age to our church uh, and similar size. One of the founding elders, the church literally started in his basement, was, was very anti-mask and anti-vaccine. And one of the other elders was very pro-mask and pro-vaccine. Both of them left the church. Both of them. Like one or the other would make sense, but both. Gone. Elders. Gone. Another church in our area, just gutted by division. Like... Tons of people gone, like 75%. Good, faithful, Bible-preaching churches. That's happening around us. And Satan loves it. Loves it. If we're worried about COVID or we're worried about regulations, we should be far more worried about unity in the church. He's having a heyday, causing bitterness and dissension, filling churches with what? Anger, wrath, malice, slander. It's heartbreaking. We so quickly forget. We've been brought from death to life. We've been saved out of an eternal penalty of our sin and into the family of God, given eternal, glorious life with him. Will we really be divided and ripped apart over this? Let, let it not be, church. I want you to know I have often bragged about you. I have often had the joy of, of saying to, to other pastor friends or, or friends or family from different places, no, our church has not been torn apart by this. It has not been racked with division. We have not had schisms and infighting. I hope I'll be able to continue to say that. I hope that will be uh, our uh, resounding legacy through this season. And, and we've got... We've got people who are very pro-vaccine and pro-mask, and we have people who are very anti-vaccine and anti-mask, and we have people all through range in between. People come up to me in the coffee shop while I'm sitting doing my work, and, and either they just assume one way or the other, or they'll ask me, what's your church? Where do you stand on this? Is your church making a, a stand against the government? Is your church being careful against this virus? Our church is about Christ. Our church is about Jesus Christ and his saving gospel. We're about eternal things. This doesn't define us. This isn't what we're about. I hope and pray these things will not become our identity, not as individuals and not as a church, 
But we don't fixate on this to the point that our, our disagreement over this begins to corrode and, and corrupt the unity that we have in Christ. We can disagree. That's fine. We can have engaged, lively conversation and debate, but end it with a hug. End it with an affirmation of our brotherhood together, our unity in Christ. But what we must not do, we cannot do, uh, is to have this conversation or any conversation draw us back into those things for which the wrath of God is coming. Begin to act like unbelievers as we fight and bicker. No, let us hold fast to Christ. Let this be our, our resounding call, that he is all. He is what we're about. And that he is in all. That he is at work renewing each of us Day after day, growing us in holiness. He's at work in me and he's at work in the brothers and sisters around me with whom I disagree. Let's put off that old self. Let's be aggressive and violent against our sin. Let's put on the new self being renewed in him day after day as we draw closer to Christ. And let us walk in glorious, blood-bought, Christ-centered, God-honoring unity together. Because we've been raised with Christ and that is what defines us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious hope. Thank you for the new life we have in Christ as we've witnessed in the, the baptisms this morning. Lord, what a wondrous thing, an eternally significant joy. Lord, help us. Help us to put to death then the old self. Oh, Father, I pray, I beg of you for those this morning who are, who are wrapped up in the muck and the mire of that old self. Lord, I pray specifically for those who are who are trapped in the shame and guilt of, of sexual immorality. God, would you open their eyes to see your holiness? Would you crush them with the weight of it, God, by your grace and bring them to their knees? Lord, help us, help us to put off, to put to death those old passions and lusts that so easily rule us. God, would you guard our tongues as we speak to one another? God, that we would do away with, with anger and wrath and malice and slander, coarse joking and obscene talk, that these things would have no place among us. God, would you renew us? Lord, help us to see you, that we might be like you as we see you more clearly. You would be transforming us into the image of Christ more and more. And God, in that, would you draw us together in sweet unity? As we cry out, Christ is all and in all. Lord, do it. Do it for the glory of your name. Do it for the good of the believers gathered here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.